Good morning, everybody. The Lord be with you. Uh, my name is Troy, and I also don't have a cottage. So, um, I want to um, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things before I jump into the final teaching of our summer series, the Old Testament mixtape. Oh, uh, somebody sad about that. Don't worry, next Sunday we'll still do something. In fact, next Sunday we'll start a new teaching series. Um, It's going to be called Essentials. Um, We're going to take six weeks, six Sundays, um, to highlight a couple of core truths around which Mars Hill Bible Church centers itself. So we're going to talk about God, we're going to talk about the Bible. We're going to talk about what it means to be in covenant relationship with one another. We're going to talk about what it means to mobilize, to be on mission. We're going to talk about what it means to be in gathered worship. We're going to talk about what it means to seek and to pursue transformation. And over these six weeks, what we hope will be done, I hope that will draw us back after this scattered summer and help us to orient and to reprioritize a couple of these essentials. Hope you don't miss any of them. There are a couple of other things that we're excited to unveil during this series. Also, I I, want to ask that you would consider joining Ashley and I um, for the next of our quarterly connects, the first of the quarterly connects of this upcoming ministry year. Um, this is an opportunity in a smaller gathering um, f- to get a little glimpse of some vision, some updates on church life, to get some sneak peeks about what's to come. I have really loved the three quarterly connects that we did last ministry year. I loved those spaces, I loved the interaction, and I would say this, Ashley and I would both love to see more of you outside of a Sunday. That's the other thing that it's done, it's actually offered us a little bit of more relaxed time to be together. So please consider that September the 13th, Wednesday. You guys, could I have the, the slides on this screen? That'd be great. Um, I hope that you will join us for both of those things. Okay, I wanna give you a story about an experience that I had in a worship gathering um, not that long ago. This was not here at our church, this was in another venue, um, but it was a, a, a worship service that has a similar order, a similar liturgy as ours. Uh, we would do some singing, do some praying. After the teaching portion, there would be an invitation for people to receive the Eucharist, to sing together, and to request prayer. And so on this particular day, I came and I received the Eucharist, and then I went to some of the people who were around the room to request prayer. Um, Let me stop here. I'm a broken record, but I'm going to continually say this. Would you please take advantage of the opportunity and the invitation every single week to be prayed for? There are these faithful staff and faithful volunteers who are so willing and so eager to be present with you and to pray for you. And again, let me stress, the invitation to prayer, there's not a, a requirement that your life be falling apart. It's not a requirement that 
your marriage be in crisis or your finances or your health or your spiritual life. The invitation is for everyone to receive prayer. I, in fact, hope one of my prayers is that in this upcoming year, our church would grow in this particular area, that we'd be quick to request prayer, we'd be quick to pray for one another, I would like to cause a real problem for our prayer team and for there to be so many people who want to be prayed for that they just simply can't handle it. Will you help me make that a problem? Anyway, in this particular moment, I had come to request prayer. And one of my habits, often when I come to be prayed for, is um, I just come ready to receive whatever the person is gonna pray for me. So I came up to this person, I didn't know this person, I introduced myself to him, gave him my name, and then this man said, what do you want me to pray for? And I said, I am here, I'm here to receive whatever the Holy Spirit leads you to pray over and for me. And so, this really kind man lays a hand on my shoulder and he waits a couple of beats, and he begins to pray. And his prayer is, for the most part, made up of pronouncing and speaking over me biblical truth. Troy, you are created in the image of God. You are good. Troy, you are accepted as one of God's children. Troy, you are one of God's beloved. And then, I think, in a moment of Wanting to be even more comforting. This, I felt the, the hand on my shoulder tighten a little bit more. And the man prayed these words. God, would you remind Troy that you know him intimately. Remind Troy, God, that you know the exact number of every hair on his head. Now, he said this, and I opened up my eye just a little bit, and I peeked, because I was wondering if he was trying to be funny. But I saw him, and his eyes are tight shut, and his hand is still gripping my shoulder, and he's concentrating, and he's moved on to the next phrases of this well-meaning prayer. Now, I tell you this story for two reasons. The first is this. Praying for other people is really hard. I'm not telling the story to make fun of that guy. Not in any way, shape, or form. Trying to listen to the still, small voice of the Spirit, guiding you to pray for another person while not being completely silent while you're waiting and listening. It's the, praying for somebody can be a lot of pressure. It's a moment of real intimacy and vulnerability, not just to be prayed for, but to be someone who is praying for. Praying for another person can be really hard. But the second reason I tell this story is that I've been bald for a long time. Thank you, Chad. In fact, I've crossed over the age where I have been bald longer than I've had hair. I don't notice, for the most part, comments about baldness. I don't take them really personally. 
I just kind of take it for granted. This is, this is reality. But there have been some times that have stood out. There have been a couple of, there have been a couple of moments of physical touch. Moments when people pat my head or rub my head. Those moments stand out. Can, can I just say right now, can we all just agree, let's keep our hands off of each other. <laughs> Bald heads, expectant mother's stomachs, braids, dreads, afros, whatever it is, can we just agree, let's keep our hands off. Okay, anyway. So there have been these physical, moments of physical touch, and then there have been moments where where I know that there have been these comments, words that really were intended to make fun of me, words that really were intended to be an insult. Um, But for the most part, I know I'm bald. I've been bald a long time. I don't think about it. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open it up to the book of 2 Kings. Yes, we're in 2 Kings again. This was not planned, but we're in the book of 2 Kings another time during our Old Testament series. We're going to be in the second chapter of 2 Kings today in your Blue Shed Bible. It's on page 337. 337, 2 Kings chapter 2, it reads this way. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. And he turned around and he looked at them and he called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. The word of the Lord. I am going to guess that there are a range of reactions to this particular story. Can I begin here? Honest show of hands. How many of you have never heard or seen this story before? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm guessing this isn't showing up on a lot of sermon series. Probably not heard this taught a lot. The range of reactions makes sense. Should we think this is funny? Is it okay if we find it really troubling and problematic? Is it okay to be confused that this story is even in the Bible in the first place? I probably can't answer all of those questions, but what I want to do is this morning, I want to hold this story up in front of us. And I want to look at it a little closer, look at some of the things that might be happening just under the surface, and then I want to utilize this story potentially as a summary of where we've been for this whole summer to highlight a couple of themes. So let's do this. Um, Let's begin here. Let's begin with the main character. I want to begin with the prophet Elisha. We actually heard a little bit about Elisha earlier this summer in one of Kyle's teachings, but we didn't talk very much about who Elisha is. Elisha, we first encounter in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19. Elisha is plowing a field, minding his own business, when another prophet named Elijah comes along and calls Elisha to be uh, his protege. 
He basically becomes a prophet in training under Elijah. And then there's some silence. We come to 2 Kings chapter 2, and here something dramatic happens. Elijah, this important prophet in the Old Testament, he's taken from the earth directly up to heaven in a really dramatic event. And Elisha is there to witness it. Elisha sees this happen. And from there, Elisha essentially takes up Elijah's mantle as this key prophet. And then we have a run of chapters in 2 Kings that center around Elijah, Elijah's ministry. A bunch of weird words and weird events, including this notorious story that we're looking at today. So Elisha is this interesting character. Where am I? Where am I on my notes? Does anybody have my actual notes? Oh, this is actually it. Sorry. I thought for a minute that I had a page that shouldn't have been in my notes. I picked up off the printer. Okay. (laughs) Elisha begins his ministry in Jericho, a city that we've talked about a couple of times this summer. Jericho, one of the first things Elijah does is he goes into Jericho and he blesses and cleanses the water supply in Jericho. A really generous, caring action. And then the text tells us that Elijah moves on to another city, that he's headed to a city called Bethel. Bethel's a really important city in the Old Testament. It literally means the house of God. We see the city of Bethel first in Genesis chapter 28. Jacob has been wrestling an angel. Jacob realizes that he's been in the presence of God at this particular site, and Jacob declares this site. Um, he, he, He erects a pillar. He pours some oil on it and anoints it and says, this place is called the house of God, Bethel. And so the This is a very sacred place. The house of God, that's a big deal. But now, as Elisha is headed to Bethel, Bethel has become known for, has got a reputation for being a place of scandalous idolatry. Bethel is no longer this revered place. It's now full of, of idolatry. In 1 Kings 12, we find the, the King Jeroboam at that time. He erects a couple of golden calves in the city. Does that sound familiar? Didn't work the first time, let's try it a second time. A couple of golden calves in the city and people flock to worship it. It begins sort of the downfall of the city of Bethel to be this place of scandalous idolatry. And that's where Elisha is headed. And then we come to that part, which is a combination of humorous and troubling all at the same time. A couple of details that maybe will help us to situate this story. Along the way, some boys show up and they insult Elisha. Now, we get into this sort of weird territory of a bunch of different Bible translations and which language is correct. We, d- we have lots of disagreement f- between the Bible translations about this section. Um, boys. Some translations 
say boys. Some translations say children, which is really icky, isn't it, in this story? Some translations say young lads. Whatever it is, the word that it's based on, the Hebrew word, the connotation of that particular word, it certainly includes young adults, but it probably doesn't ever include, say, kindergartners. It's a range of ages, tilting towards an older, but probably not a younger. In fact, uh, there are some uh, who look at this story and they wonder if these boys, these lads, these young men, uh, if maybe they were sent by the shrines, these idolatrous shrines, that maybe these were acolytes, that maybe these were temple assistants, that these boys were actually sent by the priests of these idolatrous temples to go down and to confront Elisha as he's coming into their city. It's an interesting theory. Makes some sense because when you think about it, the city probably isn't excited about one of God's prophets showing up to start judging it, right? Sort of makes some sense. Okay, anyway, these boys, these young men, these young lads, they jeer at Elijah. Elisha. Now, our translation says, get out of here, baldy. Um, some translations say, get on up, or like Curtis Mayfield, or get up, get out, like this kind of a thing. Um, what's happening in this spot, there's a couple of ways we can probably understand this jeering. First, if we stick with the theory that these might have been acolytes or temple assistants, right, then what's possibly happening here is that these young men have been sent by the shrines um, to dismiss or to threaten Elisha as he's coming into the city. Then maybe this get out of here, get out, go on up, then maybe this is a way that we can understand the jeering. It's a threat, it's a dismissal. Another possibility. Elisha's new to the job. He's a new prophet. And so maybe this jeer, maybe this insult, it's a way of challenging this new prophet. It's really similar to what happened to the previous prophet, Elijah. First Kings 18, there's a showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. This showdown that puts the powers of the gods of the people and versus the power of Elijah's God. And Elijah is mocked and jeered in that moment. This could be a kind of similar callback to that. Maybe what's happening here is Elisha is recognized as this untested, brand new, newly installed prophet. And these are, they're dismissing him. They're dismissing him. You're not like the older, proven prophet who's now gone. Another possibility. This language, go up, it shares the root word that describes what happened to Elijah when he was taken up into heaven. And so maybe what's being said here is, Elisha, go up like that other one. We wish you were dead. We wish you would get out of here. Go up like that other prophet did. Or maybe, 
Another possibility. And this, I think, the most sobering of all the possibilities. Maybe Elisha, maybe Elisha didn't suffer from early onset male pattern baldness. Consider this. Maybe Elisha, in a sign of mourning for Elijah, who just left the earth, shaved his head. He shaved his head as a sign of mourning. And if that's the case, then what's being insulted is not Elijah's physical appearance. It's Elijah's grief that's being made fun of. It's Elijah's grief that's being insulted and ridiculed. And that's another level low blow, right? Now, of all these possibilities, maybe there's one, maybe it's a mixture of all of them, whatever that means, whatever you prefer, whatever fits your own interpretation best, I think each of these is helping to illuminate a little bit more the delivery system, these boys. They must have been of, probably of a certain kind of age in order to deliver these messages. There's an intentionality. There's a sophistication even to the insults and to the jeers. These probably weren't elementary school insults being thrown around. Chances are probably good, I think, that we're not dealing with little kiddos here. And yet, whatever their age, what happens next is really, really difficult to understand and to rationalize. And I don't have a clever, insightful explanation for it. This is a shocking and tough to reconcile action and consequence to an insult. But I want to show you a couple of other texts that may be related to what happens here that might, that might shine a little bit of light on this strange, troubling scene of bears coming out of the woods and mauling young men. The first is in uh, the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 26. There's this section where it's laying out the punishments, the consequences of God's people living in disobedience, the consequences of God's people continuing um, to live contrary to the covenant that they made with God. So starting in verse 21 in Leviticus 26, this is God speaking. God says, if you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I will send wild animals against you and they will rob you of your children. And then later, later in the book of Hosea, Hosea, this wonderful book where we get to see on display God's patient heart, a patient God who desires to see the people return to reform their ways. We get to chapter 13 and you see God is kind of running out of that patience. 
And God speaks to these people, to the people of Israel, and he pronounces a consequence, a consequence of their continued disobedience. And it says this, so I will come upon them like a lion, like a leopard I will lurk by the path, like a bear robbed of her cubs I will attack them and rip them open, like a lion I will devour them, a wild animal will tear them apart. I don't think either of these sections solves the discomfort. Certainly not the discomfort that I feel in our current teaching text. I don't think it solves that. I don't think it completely answers anything, frankly. But it does make me wonder, could we be seeing in this little episode with Elisha, could we be seeing a demonstration of generations of disobedience being dealt with? Could we be seeing that God, in fact, remains serious? God remains serious about the covenant made with God's people. God remains serious about this covenant and that there are consequences for continuing to live contrary to God's ways. Could that be what we're seeing here? These are just a couple of insights. I hope that these insights open up the story a little bit more for us. I hope we can read it and see that maybe this is more than simply a bunch of disrespectful teenagers and a quick and sensitive, quick to curse old man coming into contact with each other. In fact, I actually think that what we see in this little story are at least two takeaways that help us to summarize a lot of the ground that we've covered over the summer. A lot of the themes that we have seen as we've looked at the Old Testament. I just wanna highlight two for you, okay? First, first theme is this, that your words have power. Now. Maybe your words don't have calling wild animals out of the forests to attack people who insult you kind of power. Maybe not that kind of power, but power nonetheless. Throughout this whole summer, we've been seeing that words really matter. Words really matter. Every single one of us, like Balaam, has the power to bless and the power to curse. It's striking to think about Jonah's words. Jonah's words, which resulted in an entire city repenting. Jonah's words, which likely were reluctant words. Jonah's words, which likely were delivered half-heartedly, were still filled with tons of power. The words that are on our lips really matter. That's one of the reasons why Denise encouraged us to always have a song of love at the ready. The words on our lips really matter. And it can be easy to forget that our words matter when they're just tossed out into the swirling mess of lots of other words on the world wide web. 
It's really easy to forget that your words matter when you just type and click and shut down the device, never having to physically interact with another person or to see the consequences of our words. It can be easy to forget that our words matter. I wonder this. What if we lived... What if we lived like there was no such thing as a passing comment? Do you know this phrase, passing comment? It's a way of categorizing words and it implies that they don't actually matter, that they shouldn't affect anybody or they shouldn't affect anything. It's just a passing comment that doesn't have, anyone, do you know what I'm talking about? What if we lived like there was no such thing as a passing comment? Maybe the words that you mutter under your breath Maybe the words that you whisper from the other room after somebody has left it. Maybe the words that you scream in your car actually really matter. Maybe, maybe all of these words, maybe they aren't inconsequential passing comments. The book of James, it talks in just chapter three, it talks a lot about the tongue, the impact of the tongue. It says that a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. That's power. Your words have power. James goes along to say that out of the same mouth, people praise the Lord, they bless, and they also curse human beings. It's power. Those are powerful words. I had, this, I had this kind of crazy vision yesterday. I had this image or vision of people walking around with these little display bars above their head, kind of like in a video game, all right? And the display, uh, the little meter, it, like, it displayed how many words they were speaking that were cursing words and how many words they were speaking that were blessing words. And I imagine that everybody, I could see over the top of everybody. Of course, I didn't have one, by the way. But everybody else had this display, this meter, and I could see sort of the balance of blessing and cursing words. And then I had this image of me running as fast as I can, smashing the X button, right? getting away as fast as I can from all of the cursing crowds and on the lookout, looking for the groups of people who were populated by blessing and wanting to surround myself with those people. We've got a, an upcoming political season sure to be filled with words and words and more words. And I wonder, I wonder what it would look like for every single one of us to pay attention to the meter, our language meter, to pay attention to how many of your words fall in a cursing category and how many of your words fall into a blessing category. Let's be a church that takes really seriously the power of our words. And let's be a church that seeks to bless like crazy. Second theme I think we see from the summer is that God's power is beyond us. 
God's power is beyond us. God's power is beyond our understanding. That God's power is beyond our logic. God's power is beyond our categories. God's power is beyond our sensibilities. God's power is beyond our preferences. Have you noticed how often God behaves in ways that you and I wouldn't? Have you noticed that? God's power is beyond us. We sang a bit of it this morning. Graves into gardens, bones into armies, seas into highways. You're the only one who can. That is power beyond us. And there's a real tension in this. There's a real tension in trying to hold God's powerful actions and trusting that God is good while God is acting powerfully and having no idea how to understand what God is doing. That's a real tension. It's really hard. Bears mauling young men? Jephthah's daughter? Job's sufferings? How do we make sense of these things? There's a Pentecostal theologian named Cheryl Bridges Johns who writes, she writes a really great book about the Bible, but she writes in this book about God's otherness. That God is unlike, that God is fully other. And she describes God's otherness like this, that God is a presence that disrupts the present. Isn't that a nice phrase? A presence that disrupts the present. With, a, with both promise and judgment. And let's be honest, that's a combination none of us would choose. Why would we choose promise and judgment that's fully other? And then she goes on to prompt and to provoke and say something like this, are you and I, are you and I open Are you and I open to our ideas and our expectations of God being changed and challenged by God himself? Are you open to your ideas and expectations of God being changed by the otherness of God? God's power is beyond us. It's a power that enables people to see differently. For enemies in the eyes of the world to now be welcomed at a table. God's power breaks through strongholds, families being freed of generations of abuse, individuals being capable of leaving behind what has kept them in bondage. God's power uses a fish as a tool of rescue and restoration. God's power crumbles a city with just shouts and trumpets. God's power uses really unlikely people in the plan of putting everything back together. God's power is beyond us. And yet, this power is also available to us. The book of Romans reminds us, it says that the very power that raised Jesus from the dead, the very spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, that power also lives 
inside of you. God's power is beyond us, but God's power is also given to us, never for us to manipulate or to control, but God's power is given to us, and God's power is in us. What what a generous God. I don't say this lightly, but the words that we speak when we come to this table every week, I believe, are filled with power. Not because of an office, not because of an educational degree, not because of any sort of job title, but because the Spirit of God, the power of God lives in us individually and collectively. So when we come here, we see that both words matter and that power, generosity beyond what we could ever have imagined or dreamt up on our own is available and offered to us. What a gift. And so I say to you, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And in the spirit of generosity and thanksgiving, we pray together how right and good and a joyful thing it is at all times and in all places to give thanks to you, God Almighty, the powerful creator of heaven and earth. And so we join our voices these words that have power and meaning and impact. We join our voices with the angels and the archangels, all of the company of heaven, who are forever surrounding your throne singing this hymn of praise. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So we look to you, Holy Spirit, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Would you be powerful in these moments now? Would you make of these simple physical elements for us a spiritual food that would sustain us, that would empower us, that would feed us as we stumble along the path to be a faithful disciple? Be undeniably present with us, we pray. And amen. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, spoke powerful, meaningful words to his disciples. He said to them that this is my body broken for you. So take and eat And in a similar way, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is the new promise. It is the promise renewed that God has not given up on the world. That God is generous with spirit and with power. And the invitation is to take and eat and to drink.
And so every time we do this, every time we come to this table, the story is told again. And the future hope is proclaimed again. Both of them, the past and the future, brought into this present moment by power which is beyond us. And we try to tell this story, we try to bear witness to the story, we try to take it into our bodies and also express it with our voices and our lives, this great mystery of our faith. And so we speak it now together. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So over these next couple of minutes, let's eat and let's sing and let's pray and let's be on the lookout for both the power of words and the power of God so graciously and generously offered in us and through us. So come, receive who you are, the body of Christ. Taste and see that the Lord is good.